Design Inside is brought to you by Explain, a design consultancy focused on using the power of design to activate strategy, culture, and process in organizations since 1993. Hi, this is Dave Gray, your host for Design Inside, where we explore how design is changing the face, function, and futures of organizations by talking to the people who are at the heart of the change. And today, uh, we're talking to Indy Young. Indy's a freelance researcher who coaches, writes, and speaks about inclusive software strategy, bringing depth and breadth of knowledge about people's purposes via the painstaking detail of listening sessions and synthesis. Welcome, Indy. It's good to see you. Thanks so much, Dave. This is exciting. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. Ha! I help people get focused on people. Um, I know that we all say that is what we do as user experience designers or as product managers, um, but for the most part, we're looking at people through the lens of our solution, through the lens of our organization, through the lens of how we're helping them get something done. I like to describe it as kind of like there's that glass pane and everything we do is through that glass pane with respect to how the the, the person can interact with us. Yeah, sure, we'll go in and do ride-alongs with them and see how well they can use us in context and stuff, but it's all about that glass pane. Um, and in, what I do is problem-space research, so I'm trying to understand a person's purpose that has nothing to do with your organization, just the purpose. Now, your organization might help that person achieve that purpose, uh, but, oh, my God, when you do a focus like that, you start learning that there are different perspectives. There are a lot of different philosophical, philosophical approaches to a purpose. There's different nuances, and there's different thinking styles. So that's what I capture and create. Yeah, well, and purpose is kind of uh, con context dependent, right? It depends. Mm -hmm. It depends a lot on where you are. You know, you might have different purpose depending on. I mean, uh, I guess we can talk about purpose on a small scale and purpose on a very large scale. Um, yeah. Are you talking about one or the other or both? When, I'm know. talking about the one that has nothing to do with your organization. So you might have a purpose of, hey, I've got a purchase this item and maybe I just want to pick it up because I've I've got a, a lot of errands to do and I don't want to spend time going into the store, right? That's mm -hmm. a purpose that's related to that store, okay? Your, uh, the larger purpose, though, is something that perhaps your great-grandparents might have had as well, which is, holy cow, the refrigerator broke and I'm hosting a party this weekend and I've already created half the dishes and they're in the fridge and I need a new fridge here ASAP so I don't lose those things. Um, now, I don't know if my great-grandparents had refrigerators, but <laughs> <laughs> but that is a purpose. Now, you might serve that purpose by actually taking the stuff out of your dead fridge and taking it to the neighbors. Or you might already have a fridge, uh, an extra fridge in your garage or something. Or You might serve that purpose in different ways. One of those ways of doing it is running down to your local appliance or big box store and getting a new fridge. Um, okay? It's... The purpose is completely detached from an organization. Um, another uh, purpose might be, oh, my gosh, I broke my phone or I lost my phone. I dropped it down the uh, sewer pipe out on the street down in the gutter when I was walking to work. You know, mm -hmm. I'm always scared of those things. <laughs> um, and, and I need to, you know, contact the kids this afternoon when they are doing their after-school stuff. Um, I could solve that problem a number of ways, right? Uh, 
Mm -hmm. I could contact, uh, when I get to work, I could contact a, a, another person who could help take care of the kids or a partner who I might have in, in raising those kids. Um, I could run down to the big box store and actually get a new phone, or I could actually show up in person like we used to do in the old days and, like, pick up the kids um, uh, physically, right, instead of communicating with them digitally first. So there's a lot of ways we can serve that purpose. And so I like to say that a purpose is something that could, you could get in a time machine and go back in time and do listening sessions with people back then about the same purpose. No, granted. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it sounds I was going like to say granted, but... Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the fridge and the, and the cell phone might not have been around then, but, um, but you get the idea, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're helping people kind of explore problem uh, spaces or problem domains to yes. understand what kind of uh, things people are trying to accomplish within their situation. Yes, that's exactly it. I call myself a problem space researcher. So how do you how do you prioritize problems? How do you or how do you find them? How do you find them? Well, uh, oftentimes it's because there's been an assumption and something nasty has happened to your org. Uh, because of that assumption, and, um, and and so you're sort of like backpedaling, trying to figure out, okay, wait, where did we go wrong? Let's actually find out more about this so that we can do it right this time. Um, but on a, on the other hand, I've had plenty of people who are, uh, hey, we want to innovate in this in this area, but you know, typically what we do is just copy the the competition and. Uh, we think there's probably more out there. And when they engage in problem space research with the idea of innovation, it's a huge gain. I've had a couple of startups do it as well as a way of having not only super deep information about the people they're hoping to support as opposed to just the information in their own heads, um, they also can use that to pivot if they need to. Uh, the data is broad enough that when we create a mental model diagram out of it, it serves really well for pivoting. Well, so, maybe you could, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about mental model diagrams? I know that's something you've spent a lot of time and energy on. <laughs> a lot of time, yes. So um, they are simply, uh, it looks like a city skyline. Um, and there's simply a way of lining up underneath all the towers in that city skyline what I do as an org to support that, the thinking in that particular tower. And the way that I create that city skyline is by doing listening sessions with lots and lots of people about a purpose. And so the city skyline contains more than what your org does, but it contains it from the point of view of that person trying to achieve their purpose. And so what happens typically is that things will show up. It's all done from the bottom up, um, aiming to be bias-free with the data. Uh, we're looking at it not as an employee, but as another human, just trying to interpret what they're trying to tell us. Um, so this is really deep data. It's not surface level um, preferences. It's not opinions. It's not statements of fact or explanations how or why somebody's doing things. But their actual inner thinking and their emotional reactions and their guiding principles that they use to make decisions as they are in the moment. So these diagrams are uh, written in first-person present tense so that as you read them, you are in the moment 
like riding along in that person's brain. Okay. The thing is, is that when we use them, we align what we're trying to do to support someone with a tower where some some concepts came together by affinity, and we start to recognize that the way we wrote our support has only a little bit to do with this tower and is sort of like meant to to support a wash of towers and it doesn't support any of them very well. Um, or the other thing that happens frequently is that we make thinking styles and it turns out we layer the thinking styles. They're like personas and I can talk about those. We layer the thinking styles on top of the, the towers in the city skyline and we notice that we're only supporting one mm. and not the others. Yeah, so there's loads of opportunity. What happens with these diagrams is that you see you see opportunities not only in in the idea that there's gaps beneath towers but also with regard to measuring the strength or weakness, which is what I was just talking about, um, or the idea that we're only supporting one of the thinking styles or none of them. A lot of people support none of the thinking styles. They support some invented idea of the user um, that got made up by the team, and that person doesn't exist, and that approach doesn't exist. Mm. And so they're doing some sort of generic support that doesn't really help. Um, my favorite example of this is an airline and all the reservation sites that are out there. Any reservation site that you go to confronts you with understanding that an airline has airplanes and they fly between airports and you can specify days and then pick which airplanes between which airports you want. So you are forced to try to understand how that organization works, how that organization runs. Whereas your thinking style might be a just get me there. There are four thinking styles that I came up with um, out of that set of data. And one of them was just get me there. I, I need to be there quick. Um, I'm going to be try to be productive on the plane. Maybe I don't like being on planes or away from my family that much. Just get me there. Um, and you don't want to have to go through all this like, okay, well, there's these planes and there's these airports and, you know, I've got to figure out which airport is closest and maybe I should go to that one or this, you know, all that kind of crap. Instead, what you want to do is tell a dang thing, hey, I need to be at this meeting or I need to be at this uh, wedding event, right? Um, or I need to meet this cruise ship uh, or I need to, you know, be at this spot and then be back in time for my four-year-old's piano recital, um, or back in time to celebrate my mom's 80th birthday or, you know, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're telling it where you need to be, um, the actual where, not the airport, <laughs> the actual where, like what city or even what neighborhood. You don't have to tell addresses. But, um, but, but being able to do that then allows that algorithm in the background to go like, oh, here's like two possible ways to do this trip. Pick one. Interesting. So yeah. it, it sounds like the it sounds like the thinking styles are also context dependent. So depending on the situation, mm -hmm. there might be a different. It's not like a, there's five thinking styles and that's it. There. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> They're very context dependent, and um, I think. Uh, I have a problem with personas the way that they're commonly used. I don't have a problem with the Kim Goodwin, Alan Cooper style research personas, but most of them are not researched and they're kind of derived from a, a, a history of market research where 
people are trying to place ads and they want demographics. And so people make demographic personas. And they write those personas in a way that they're pretending to write a horoscope. Hmm. So it's like, oh, yay, fun. We get to write horoscopes at work. Let's figure out, you know, what this person likes to do and what their pets are and, you know, this, what their personality is. And it's not personality. It's very context dependent. So that just get me there person um, might feel that way on a couple of trips, but then decide to take their toddler nephew on a trip to Disneyland. And all of a sudden, they're completely different thinking style. They're an engaged thinking style. Uh, from the research that we did, where they're trying to, you know, help the nephew be excited about the trip and the plane and seeing the pilots and how the airport works and maybe, you know, the de-icing on the plane, you know, and like, where are we going and what's that going to be like and how in the world can the weather be different there than here, you know, so suddenly you're engaged and that's context dependent. It reminds me of that um, jobs to be done, um, framework by what's his name uh the harvard guy is that the uh, christian guy or the yeah, adam guy yeah christian <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> I <know>. anyway <clears throat> um so how do you so you i mean you're in the research you're in the fuzzy front end of design very mm -hmm. early stage and you know this um this podcast is called Design Inside, and um, one of the things that I've been asking people, and I'd be interested in your take on this, um, I don't know if you see yourself as a designer or not, uh, but when I say the, the word design, what do you, I mean, there's all kinds of ways people can think of that as a domain. What, what does it conjure for you? What, what kind of things come to mind when I say that word, design? Um, for me, it has always been about understanding how well we are supporting someone. Mm -hmm. um, so when I, you know, the quintessential, you get into the elevator and the buttons are all arranged strangely and you, you take like five seconds to figure out where your floor is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you say, oh, this is bad design, right? What was your purpose? Well, or I was am I even in the right that. elevator? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. But the purpose is bigger than that. It's not just ride the elevator that's that's interacting with the object mm -hmm. right the purpose was i was carrying on a conversation with somebody when i walked into the elevator and i wanted to continue that conversation um maybe it's the ceo <laughs> and this is my one chance right mm -hmm. i don't want to mess around with the stupid buttons um may, maybe i'm visiting a place in its medical offices and um i don't want to um I don't know, I've got eyesight issues or something and I don't want to have to like bend down and, and feel all awkward trying to see those things. It's just like there's bigger purposes going on. Um, and, and so like if it's more of a disabilities thing, your purpose tends to be more around getting respect and not losing respect, right? Um, having people treat you like a human as opposed to uh, a, a, a half human right? Um, and I want to pay attention to those bigger purposes. So right? just, that purpose of yeah. does the purpose of design is to support people in your opinion, right? Yeah, the purpose of design is to support people in in their purposes. So when you when you look at all this, this these large uh, problem space, how do you prioritize? How, I mean, sounds like there's a mm. lot of stuff going on. Um, yeah, 
how do you, is it hard to find people who share a common problem? Is it, is it hard to prioritize? Um, it's not, it's not hard to find people who share a common problem. What's hard though is working. So I am a consultant. So I work with a lot of different clients on this. I also teach this now. Um, and I just started a course called Framing Your Study where I let people bring in whatever they're going to try to work on and we try to frame up the study. And that's the hard part mm. is trying to get access to the stakeholders and develop a re trusting relationship with the stakeholders so that A, I can speak their language and B, they can start to recognize that I'm bringing something important to the picture. Um, uh, Sam Ladner just wrote a book called Mixed Methods and in it she's defining all the different kinds of research that you can do. Solutions-based research, problems-based research, quantitative and qualitative research. Within the solution space there's generative and evaluative. Within the problem space it's call, being called foundational or exploratory or opportunity research. Hmm. Um, and she says, okay, the, all of these have slightly different philosophies and you need to be aware of that and you need to know what the value is of each thing before you select which tool to use. And the problem is, is most of our stakeholders have gone through business school and not been taught about research. We are the representatives of that. Even if we're not doing the research ourselves, we're the representatives of that and we need to, she says, double down. <laughs> I say like take the reins mm -hmm. um, and help our peers understand that there's so much more knowledge to be created. And the more knowledge we create, the less risk we take. Also, the better we get at diversity, the better we get at breadth, the better we get at supporting those people that we have ignored until now. Um, Kenneth Bowles wrote that book, Future Ethics. And in it, he defines those people we've ignored. They're called externalities in ethics. And then he also says the other thing that they're really concerned about in ethics is unintended consequences. Um, and if we create better knowledge, deeper knowledge at the beginning, and continuously add to it, like once a year, once every other year, um, we're going to be able to come prepared and have a plan and have some clear vision looking forward in those areas. So what, tell us a little bit about your path. How did you get into this line of work? Where did you start out and how did, you know, what was the journey like? Uh, I, it feels like I've been doing this path all my life. Um, and in a way I kind of have, I started as I got my degree in computer science um, and I really wanted to get into the front-end development back when it was just barely beginning. Uh, and there were no master's courses in it, so I just dived in. I started my master's degree, but that was going to teach me how to write operating systems and compilers. And I'm like, that's not really the direction I want to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Brenda Laurel was uh, doing a little bit of work in design, and I was really interested in that. And so I just set myself up as a front-end coder um, back before the web, so totally different. Mm. But um, that was kind of how I got started, and I was doing a job. Um, it was a, a whole bunch of different companies had come together to work together on a rework for Visa 
of their call center. They had a call center that had old machines and old software, but really fantastic, amazingly capable representatives. And everybody was all like, oh, we should change it to this machine. We should use this operating system. Let's use this database. But there was no there there. And I'm all like, okay, I, I need to understand the people. So I went out there and I did all sorts of you know, ride-alongs basically with them to see what, what their thinking is. With, now, I was looking at it through the tools at that point still, but I was getting a sense of who these people were and what was important to them um, and how they helped each other out because they're all in this vast room and they were speaking like 10 different languages in that one room. It was amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, what I did was I came home with this data and I made a state machine out of it of the people because that's the only thing I knew how to do <laughs> with it. Um, eventually, though, um, as I designed that state machine and started designing how people would interact with it, I managed to design the data uh, design. The, the, we had a, I can't remember the name of the word, um, relational database. So I designed the whole schema. Um, and the database people are like, holy cow, if you hadn't done that, we would have gone off in the whole wrong direction. And I was laying down how we wanted to interact with um, the other tools that we needed. Like they, we didn't have maps and stuff, so there was another map kind of a tool and things. And the software architects are like, oh, now you solved it for us. Now we can figure out how to put these things together. And that's where mental model diagrams came from. That was the very first iteration of me trying to help people support the person who's trying to get a purpose done, which is their, the rep's purpose was, I need to support this poor person who lost their card or had it stolen, and they're having a panic attack, and, you know, X is happening, they're moving, maybe they're traveling, they're not going to be at that hotel anymore, it's all complicated, and they're scared. So their purpose was to calm that person down and make things happen. Um, and that's... That's the beginning of it. Uh, I think after that, there were a couple iterations where I was doing stuff for people, a bunch of startups, actually, people who were um, placing ads and people who were uh, setting ads. There was a lot of that going on. Um, I also did some work for a company that was, this was before Maps again, but they were doing satellite versions um, and trying to sell them to more people than just the U.S. government, um, and they they owned the satellites that were taking the images, and um, that was the first time I drew a mental model diagram with the the way the company was supporting the towers. Mm. Yeah, and then working for different financial companies and things after that, and it's it all started coming together. And then the more people that I work with, the more I learn. So I'm working with all sorts of peers, and I remember one of them, Lad Decker, telling me, you know why do you limit the amount of stuff that goes in those towers to just three lines per person? Why can't we have more lines? Then we can get more of that person's voice out there. Uh, and so I started doing that, and that's where the whole thing turned into like, oh, th this is empathy. I'm developing cognitive empathy with people by using empathic listening to collect the data and then create it as knowledge. Cool. So yeah. Uh, let's when you're faced with a new problem a problem you haven't seen before which i'm sure happens a lot um how would you describe your approach do you have a kind of a way you go about um approaching it like a yeah. kind of a go-to 
The first is really to have listening sessions with the people who want to do this kind of research. I want to understand from them, their stakeholders, um, where are you? What are you after? What have you encountered? What are the problems you've had recently? Um, what's important? Um, so a good example of this, uh, it was a rather odd example. It was a multinational, and uh, they're having an internal conference. And as a part of that conference, they were having an innovation contest. And so my client had worked with me before, and she said, hey, I want to do one of these for the contest. And what, what, what I want to do is innovate in the kitchen. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> we, we can't research innovate in the kitchen. Um, we have to pin it down. So we, I think, spent two and a half months talking about it, you know, a couple times a week, trying to figure out which direction to go. And then she would go and talk with her stakeholders um, and try to understand what made sense. What we ended up doing was um, she wanted to zero in on, well, I wanted to zero in on people who had a lot to say about cooking. Now, cooking is one of those things that can be habitual and it can be hard to describe uh, or even remember <laughs> consciously what went through your mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm after what went through your mind. If I could actually have a telepathy server, that would be great because then I wouldn't have to do a listening session. I could just like plug it in and listen to their brain, <laughs> their little inner voice going on. Um, but uh, we don't have telepathy servers yet. So what we ended up doing was uh, narrowing it down to dinner, narrowing it down to people who consider themselves creative chefs because they would have a lot of thinking going on. It's not the person grabbing something out of the freezer and nuking it in the microwave. Um, so that's how we decided to scope it and recruit for it. We didn't know what the thinking styles were, so we had to kind of recruit broadly. Um, but, but what we ended up with were two, no, three different thinking styles out of that set of data about people who consider themselves creative chefs. And the other odd thing about this one is that typically I do my listening sessions by phone without video because I want to subtract the whole authority relationship between the interviewer and the participant. I, in fact, call them the, the, the listener and the speaker. So it's just two humans, a listener and a speaker. Mm -hmm. um, and when we're talking, again, about making dinner, I, you know, gosh, what are you going to remember about making dinner last night and the night before? So we did a listening session. And then each time, right after that listening session, a couple days later, we went over to that person's house and did another listening session in person. Mm. And at this point, we had already established that they were the authority, not us. And since they were the authority, they just picked up where they left off and started telling us stream of consciousness, my inner thinking here as I'm doing this. One person was actually doing a stir fry and she started, uh, she picked up a turmeric root and started, you know, sort of peeling it into the pan. And she's like, then I add the turmeric, you know, I, I like turmeric. I was told that it was um, supposed to help with the, the inflammation and I've got da da da. So this was her inner thinking. And then because I saw her doing that, I was also able to ask, well, you know, why are you grading it like that or um, peeling it like that? And that's when she was all, oh, yeah, when I first started using it, it would stain my cutting board. Mm. So I'm doing it in the air, <laughs> trying to avoid the stain. So, yeah, so that kind of a thing. So you start by 
talking to the people who are who are looking for the problem. Then mm -hmm. you go out and spend some time talking to the people who have the problem. Right. And then then what? Then you try and build, uh, create a mental model. You find look for um, thinking yeah. styles. Yeah. What uh, what happens is um, most people don't know how to handle qualitative data. And even some people who are writing articles for a large agency, whom we won't name here, don't quite know how to handle qualitative data properly. Uh, so there's something called coding. You would go through and mark up a, a transcript uh, with the things that are important to you. There's only three things that are important to me. These are depth, the inner thoughts, the reactions, and the guiding principles. So what I'll do is I'll mark those up, but I am, I'm not coding so much as combing through it and just rewriting each one of those concepts that I find in a certain syntax. I start with first person present tense verb. I follow it with the key point. I add some supporting details and then I've got a summary that that person could have said. It's got a lot of their own words in it. They're the way, their way of talking. Um, this is how I start building up the little atomic pieces. It's a lot like putting a puzzle together and everybody wants to jump because they haven't been trained about this coding stuff. They, they want to jump to the actual putting the puzzle pieces together without making the puzzle pieces first. So you're rationalizing so, the, the data and kind of making everything consistent. Uh, not making everything consistent, no. Making everything unique and individual. Uh, but it follows a certain syntax. What, so like our puzzle pieces, you know, they tend to be in certain shapes and they have like round and like little square edges in the corners. Um, so there's certain, certain rules that I follow. But the point is to create each puzzle piece as clear and sharp and representative of that person as possible. The edges are sharply defined. Um, the, the color on the top is their voice. And so it's very, very clear who this came from and what it represents conceptually. So that later, after you've finished making all the puzzle pieces, you can start putting them together and it falls together much more easily. You're not like chasing circles going like, well, you know, does this belong here? Does this belong there? You're also not, you're, you're forcing yourself to look through their eyes by using first person present tense verb as opposed to letting your own structural bias from the organization influence the way that you're seeing the data. And I see that happen with teams over and over again. Even teams that have been doing this for 10 years, they let that happen because it's, it's subconscious. And then you put and the so, puzzle pieces together into a mental model diagram. Yep, becomes a mental model diagram. Then after we have all that detailed knowledge about people, we can create the thinking styles. And the thinking styles come together differently. Um, and I teach a course on that too, because it's kind of hard to do. <laughs> but they will come together. Um, and what they do is they just describe a philosophical approach. So when I describe a thinking style, I'll call it by a name that that person would be proud to describe themselves as. So like uh, the airline ones were engaged unfazed, get it over with, and frustrated. The airline people wanted to call the frustrated the grumbler. I'm like, no, that's not going <laughs> to ride. <laughs> 
right? And then I'll just, just describe my inner thinking as an engaged person or my inner thinking as an unfazed person. And it's all in first person present tense. It uses some of the language that we've seen, and it's about, I don't know, four or five sentences long. And then would each one of those have their own mental model? Uh, typically not. <laughs> typically what I do is I layer it on top of the mental model so that I can see in each of these towers in the city skyline how many thinking styles are represented. Or if like there's a whole building that's just one thinking style. Hmm, that's interesting. What's going on there, right? Yeah. Um, we can, yeah. So the thinking styles are uh, what we use to define. So jobs to be done, this kind of data works so well as super rich data to start off a jobs to be done process. Um, Jim Kalbach and I have worked together a little bit over the years trying to help each other define what how to describe this. Um, and uh, the idea is that in jobs to be done you want to be able to write some scenarios. You've got characters, you've got these thinking styles, and you've got the towers. You've got the context. The context is what's going on as this person is trying to achieve this purpose in this certain thinking style. And so I write this big old matrix, and you can draw up, well, you can choose which, which scenarios are a priority for right now for whatever project you're embarking on, and then start writing those things up that way. Sounds like these things could have a really long lifespan. They could be useful for a pretty long time. Yeah, I, I love to tell people that if your kids got your job <laughs> and you retired, they'd still be working with this, and they could still be adding to it, too. Um, some people will use the same data for three, four, five years and then do another round of research and add to it. Awesome. So yeah. and that, at that point, you've created something that they can use to... Uh, create new products and services and yeah sort of and see where their gaps are and see like how are we going to prioritize uh, our, our, our path forward um you know product strategy wise which direction like we were thinking we were going this direction but this data is saying this is that makes sense still so who um, typically takes ownership of those uh, assets is it like a uh, is it a strategy team a customer experience product it varies because different teams are built slightly differently, but generally what I've seen is there's a centralized team, and that centralized team will associate itself with design. Um, whether it's made up of a combination of UX and project management and research or just one or the other of those differs. Um, and there's still plenty of organizations that don't have a centralized team and are trying to centralize or are in power uh, struggles mm. with other groups um, and trying to figure out their way through that, right? So yeah. part of the thing, um, especially with power struggles, because uh, <laughs> it seems so untenable, um, is that I, I will help teams learn how to truly listen to the other person, like drop your own reaction or notice when you're reacting. Um, so maybe an example is somebody from, say you're in UX and somebody from the, the product manager's team comes in with a whole design, right? Says, do this, right? And you're like, no, 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 you know, not so fast. Like, 
that's an emotional reaction. So where does that emotional reaction have its roots? What is it that you're objecting to? Um, even just set that aside for now and say, gosh, this person's coming from a totally valid point of view. Now, my initial assumption is this person is coming from a point of view where they want to uh, take my job or they want to show how much smarter they are than I am, right? Let's assume for a minute neither of those are true. Maybe that person is just really excited about this, uh, this part of the way of supporting people. Maybe this person really wants to be a designer uh, that got the product management job instead. Um, you know, there's, the totally, there's a long history behind where that person came from up to the present point. And to accept that, right, and to embrace it and say, wow, you did this. Wow, that's really cool. So what were you thinking? Let's sit down. Let's go through it. What were you thinking? Let me help uh, unpack your, your inner thinking there um, and compliment you on the things that you did well and help you with the things that you didn't do well as a good collaborator, right? Um, so this is uh, one part. The other part is that um, I tell people never have lunch alone. Always go and try to have, when you're at work, have lunch with someone that you're going to be working with, whether it's a couple of levels up from you, on your same level, different departments, um, the, the people that you're in the power struggle with. Have lunch with people and listen. And if you do that enough times with enough of the, you know, do it over and over again with the same person, you're going to start to demonstrate to them how well you listen and they're forming trust with you. And trust is a huge thing, especially in these <laughs> growing teams that everybody seems to be building. Um, being able to trust somebody else will allow you guys to have that conversation about good process later on. Yeah, I have so many more questions to ask and we're running short on time. Uh-oh. Uh, so uh, one question I want to definitely get to is people love tools. We've talked a, a lot about uh, mental model as, modeling as a tool, mapping. Um, other than that, do you have any, and when I say tools, I don't necessarily mean software tools. I mean mm -hmm. methodologies, frameworks, uh, activities, exercises. Do you have any um, go-to uh, tools like that that you really like that you find yourself going to over and over? Uh, well, the mindset that I just described about accepting someone for who they are, where they are, and knowing that they have this beautiful human experience in the background, um, the other, and that's a super, super important one. The other tool is to practice listening in a lot of different scenarios. So anytime you find yourself in line or, or waiting for something, um, maybe your kids are running a race and you're waiting at the finish line and there's people around you, talk right? Strike up a conversation. See if you can make it all on their side. When you're at a conference, I was just at Event Apart, um, and every time a conversation struck up, I always reflected it back on people to try to get them to talk about themselves. And there were some good listeners there, and they would turn it around and make me talk yeah. about my, my inner thinking. So that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think practice is really important. You spend, it sounds like you spend a lot of time building rapport and uh, listening, but you also spend a lot of time structuring, putting things into a structure. 
Yeah, yeah. The um, I, I, maybe the other thing that's super important is knowing your linguistics, knowing that the meaning of words is important. Uh, and I think that that is something that's been coming up a lot in diversity training, mm. um, is that you may not mean to harm someone, but your words can be taken as being harmful. So there's this growing awareness that words are important. And the way that you structure your words is important, um, not only in the, the harmful kind of way, but also in the understanding and knowledge creation point of way. So being be, be, building your awareness of the meaning of words is another very important tool. So many people who I've worked with and who I've been training says, wow, this thing has its root in linguistics. Hmm. Um, I've never studied linguistics myself, but I can see their point. It's definitely about the meaning. Cool. So uh, yeah. what should what should CEOs be thinking about that they're not thinking about today uh, or that many of them aren't thinking about? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I think risk. Hmm. <laughs> um, CEOs are thinking about risk all the time, right? It's not that they're not thinking about it, but they are letting themselves be uh, calmed by the wrong thing, um, by research results that have uh, come out of a team that let themselves be biased by their own frame of reference. Um, so it becomes confirmation bias, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, it also, there's a lot of risk in um, you know, not, not doing the, the creating those little puzzle pieces correctly. Uh, <laughs> so the other side of it, though, is that some risk is acceptable. And I want CEOs to be able to say, hey, we're at this point where we want to try something new. What do we know? What don't we know? Of the things that we don't know, we're not going to be able to answer it completely. But there might be some things in there that cause risk. Are we willing to accept that? And if not, let's go find out. Let's go understand people's purposes in there. Yeah, so, so they, they, be, they should be thinking about what they're not thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not hard to do a little bit of examination that way, though. Um, I'll take a look at competition. See where people are going wrong. Listen to the media. You're already listening to the media, right? Mm -hmm. What are people up in arms about? Even with people who you don't consider your competition, like Facebook perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, oh, there's a lot of things people are up in arms about. Let's make sure we're not going to fall into those same traps by allowing an unintended consequence uh, that might be similar to one of those. Um, or by not recognizing that there are externalities. There's a super quick story that um, Sarah uh, Parmenter tells about a flower, florist, a flower company in the UK. And every Mother's Day, they would send out an email blast to everybody, hey, order your Mother's Day bouquets, without recognizing that there are people whose mothers have passed away or people whose children have passed away and they don't really want to get those messages. Mm. Um, now, Sarah addressed it just by running a little social media campaign. I would address it by having already done the research as to people's purposes and, and 
recognize, I've heard it, right? People will tell me this unasked. They will tell me about, you know, not like every Mother's Day, I, I you know, worry about my mom uh, because, uh, you know, she she's, you know, in, she's passed on, but she's left behind, you know, these, these, I don't know, diverse siblings and we don't talk to each other, you know, whatever it is, right? There is another opportunity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to do with, you know, send your mom flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe send your sibling flowers. <laughs> so one more question. Um, do you have any advice for people who are early or mid-career in terms of uh, career advice? Uh, can you frame that a little bit? Uh, you know, people who are looking to um, maybe follow in your footsteps or they want to uh, mm. they want to create a career in this area. or Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> do it. Um, definitely do it. It's an incredibly rewarding career. There are t- tend to be two different kinds of uh, thinking styles. One is the thinking style that loves listening to people and, and finding out about people. Um, the other thinking style is the puzzle making one, the, the cutting out of puzzles and putting the puzzle pieces together. Some people have both of those. Um, but the one core thing that you want to have is this idea that uh, I can embrace the crazy mess that other humans are, and it's fine. It looks chaotic, but I can find patterns in it. Um, and then the other part is that you are not alone. Join us. Join us as a discipline. There, I mean, there's a lot of people in academic world who have been doing this for decades and decades. The group that's doing it, an applied world, has not until like the groups that I'm putting together, not had a group to sort of rely on. Mm. Um, There's the qualitative researchers um, uh, organization, which came out of market research. And I could probably get them to go this direction too. Uh, But definitely know your research types, know your data to collection types, understand uh, what positivism and constructivism is. Um, understand the difference between deductive and inductive and abductive. Know your tools so that you can teach people around you which tools need to be used when for which questions. Great. Um, Any closing thoughts? I mean, we're almost out of time. Yeah, almost out of time. Um, I'm having a ball teaching these advanced professional courses. Mm. Uh, They're all, they're, interactive. So I actually learn so much from people because everybody gets to have time to do discussion and tell me about their own situations. And we all sort of talk about these things and try to resolve them together. Uh, So I've learned and expanded the way that I'm talking about this kind of research. Uh, It's in development. Come develop it with us. So if people want to get in touch with you to to, uh, work with you or to... uh to learn more, what would be the best way for them to do that? IndyYoung.com. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Indy. It's been really great talking to you today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I really enjoy any chance I get to chat with you. Design Inside is brought to you by Explain, 
a design consultancy focused on using the power of design to activate strategy, culture, and process in organizations since 1993.